Well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Good to see you. Hey, just a, a real quick thing. Um, if you aren't aware of this, every first Sunday of the month, we have our middle schoolers and our high schoolers come down and join us. And so, hey, church, let's give them a welcome for being here. Um, and also, hey, just I want to say also thank you to the Browns for sharing their story with us. Um, And this past Thursday, I want to share with you, I got a picture of um, some of the things that God was doing this past Thursday. We had a men's gathering, and it was awesome. We had 130-plus guys come um, just to lean in, have fellowship, and, and to kind of start asking the Lord, what does he have for us as we start to think about moving forward and, and having this discipleship movement in our church. And it was Awesome. So I just want to say, like, that was great. And if you weren't there and you're a guy, hey, that's okay. We're going to be doing more of this come 2023. So please make sure that gets on your radar because God is doing some stuff and we're really excited about that, okay? Yeah. Um, I remember the times when Carissa and I were going through the process of trying to come up with the names for our children. And we were in this like kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't say a debate, but we were just trying to figure out, should we think of a name that has like meaning, you know, like, like a name that we can actually speak into them, or is it just a name that we kind of like? And, and the names that like Carissa, my wife would come up with were like serious real names, and mine weren't so serious, you know, especially I remember when our, um, when she was pregnant with our second child, and we found out it was a boy, and, and it's just like, I started thinking about this, like, oh my goodness, I can't believe these were the names that I was actually legitimately thinking of wanting to call our son, like Maximus, Rocky, like, even though it's kind of like a joke, like, there was a little bit of hope that that would happen, right, like, all that to say, names are important, and when we look at scriptures, especially when we understand, like, the Jewish people and uh, the thoughts behind, like, how the Hebrews would start to name people, they always had a significant meaning to their name. Like, it was always a big deal. It was either representing a circumstance that led up to their birth or it was a name that was going to define who they were going to become. As we are looking in Isaiah chapter 9 in our Advent season, not only... Do we see Isaiah giving us a prophecy of this child who's going to come and establish the kingdom again to establish the throne from the line of David? But we also see four specific names that will come to define this child. Verse 6, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These names represent and reveal to us how this coming child is the great light that has come into this darkness. And last week, Pastor Jet did a great job unpacking Wonderful Counselor. And this morning, I want us to look at the name Mighty God. His name is Mighty God. What comes into your mind when you hear that phrase? When you know that the name of God, one of his names is Mighty God, what comes into your mind? Power, warrior, military, political, 
Like these are the same thoughts, I'm willing to bet, that's kind of what is floating through your mind. Those are the same thoughts that the people in Isaiah would have been thinking when this prophecy was given. And so like my interest was piqued and I started thinking about this because the actual phrase mighty God speaks of like warrior language. And so I did a Google search and I wanted to know what were the, like the 10 greatest warriors in history. The first one I saw was Alexander the Great. He's the great general who literally almost like had his conquests, like conquered almost the majority of the known world at that time. And then you have Leonidas of Sparta, right? The infamous 300 soldiers standing in defiance in the Battle of Thermopylae. Julius Caesar, a great Roman general who led Roman campaigns that conquered Gaul and, and Britain and, and Germany. He eventually became the Roman dictator for life, becoming deified. And then Genghis Khan, the Mongol destroyer, a very, very violent man. It's said that he conquered a quarter of the world's population and is known to have killed over 40 million people. His people believed that he was the greatest human ever. In fact, they saw him as a gift from heaven and his nickname was the Holy Warrior. But nowhere on any of the lists that I found do we find the child whose name was Mighty God. Jesus. Why is that? This child who was foretold to be this great light, this great hope, to be this great king, did he fail? Was this prophecy just empty rhetoric, kind of like a false hope, just to spin him up for a little bit? I mean, let's think about this for a moment because I want us to feel this tension of this name. Because I am willing to bet that you have thought or, or questioned these things. If God is mighty, if God is mighty. Where were you when I needed you? If God, if you are so almighty, why do things look the way they do? Why are things the way they are? Why doesn't God do more mighty things? Have you ever thought that? Why do we let evil, if you are almighty and you can deal with evil, why does it seem that evil is having its day? God, if you are mighty, why don't you intervene and act the way that I need you to and when I need you to? Ever been there? His name is Mighty God. But we got to kind of get ourselves into the story and feel a little bit what these people would have felt as they heard this prophecy in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. And so I want to paint a picture for us so that way we can go, what were they thinking? What were they experiencing? And it will help us understand this name. In Isaiah chapter 7, what we know is that Assyria is now the, the, the major world power. And they're starting this campaign to conquer more lands. And they got Syria and the northern kingdom at this point called Israel and the southern kingdom, Judah, on their sights. And so the king of Syria and the king of Israel, they kind of form this alliance because they know that they can't stand up against this. And they wanted to get the southern kingdom, King Ahaz, to join them. But Ahaz had no interest in joining them. So the king of Syria and the king of Israel were going to do a coup to get rid of Ahaz and set up a puppet king. But in the midst of this, 
God spoke to Ahaz and gave him this promise and started saying, listen, I know what's on your doorstep. I know Assyria is coming, but I'm telling you, I'm with you. You can trust me. And he even like challenged Ahaz, ask me for a sign and I will give you a sign. Almost as if like to solidify his promise. But Ahaz already had his mind made up. He already knew what he was going to do. And so when God said, ask, ask me for a sign, Ahaz was like, no, nah, I'm not going to put you to the test. And here's what then God said. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. Sound familiar? Emmanuel, God with us. Put yourself into Ahaz's shoes for a moment. What would you be thinking? I know what I would be thinking. What good does a baby do in this situation when the juggernaut called the Assyrian army is on my doorstep and the two northern kings are trying to kill me? God, that's all you have for me is a baby? Really? That's it? And God continues, he's like, listen, because you are choosing to trust in something else instead of me, you're going to be moving into a time of darkness and trouble. What we know is that Ahaz took matters in his own hands and made an alliance with Assyria, the very enemy of God. Ahaz thought he knew better, going his own way. And I kept thinking about this, it's like, can you really blame him? Like, like, think about this. You're about to be conquered. There's people who have a conspiracy to take you out. Wouldn't it make the most logical sense to make an alliance with the conquering nation? And that's what he did. In Isaiah chapter 8, God continues to talk about what's going to happen. He says, Assyria and the northern kingdom, Assyria is going to take them out. They're going to be judged. And you can imagine now Judah being excited about this, feeling happy about this. But then God turns the table and makes it clear that Assyria has no intention of honoring this alliance. Because they're going to come and conquer Judah. And then the chapter ends with such a depressing picture Gloom and darkness and anguish and hunger and suffering. But when all seems lost, God communicates his plan and what he's going to do to handle this darkness. Chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken on a, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is a Christmas passage, by the way, right? <laughs> Just like, hey, this is great news. Like, 
Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This prophecy had to have been deeply encouraging to King Ahaz and the nation of Judah. Mighty God, warrior God, no one but God can handle the Assyrian army. We know what mighty God means. We've seen you, God, part the Red Sea. We've seen you conquer our enemies as we went into the promised land. He's the great and mighty God. We know Psalm 24 that David wrote, like, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Even in verse 4, there's this reference back to Midian. And they know the battle of Midian. It's our little friend Gideon who had some doubt with the fleece. He had a 30, an army of 32,000 people. And God said, too many, whittles it down to 300. That had to be encouraging because Judah is small. A child is born. A son is given. A throne is mentioned, a kingdom is mentioned, rule, justice, righteousness, vindication, political, the zeal, the passion, the fire of the Lord of hosts, the angelic army. Like, what does this communicate? I painted this scene because I need you to ask this question. What expectations would come into your mind. Mighty God, warrior God, fights for us. Battle, setting up a government, political. But what about the timetable? When? When is this supposed to happen, right? Like the problem is on the doorstep and you're promising me a, a, a baby that we know at least that takes nine months. So it's like, and, and then like at what age when this child, like what age of this child will these things happen? Chad informed us last week that we know that this promise doesn't even show up really till about 750 years in fact, their situation goes from bad to worse or eventually conquered by the Syrians and then they're conquered by the Babylonians and they're conquered by the Persians and then they're conquered by the Greeks and then they're conquered by Rome. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son, this child who was born of a virgin, the wonderful counselor, this mighty God wrapped in flesh, placed in a manger, totally helpless, and yet he's the mighty God. And for 30 years, this child, whose name is Jesus, lived in obscurity, and then at a wedding in Canaan, 
He revealed his glory by turning water into wine and people start to follow him and word spreads that this might be the long-awaited Messiah. This might be the king from the line of David. He's teaching with authority, casting out demons. He's healing the sick, giving sight to the blind. And he makes these claims about himself and no other claim that has been so potent and so sacred as the name I am. People in the Gospels, wanted to make Jesus king by force. The religious elites and guardians known as the Pharisees and the scribes, they refused to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. How could he be? He's, he's attacking us. He's against our customs and our traditions. There's no way he could do this. We know his family. He's befriending sinners. Look at how he's talking to the Roman. Like he's serving and speaking positively of them. And even the Samaritans, Jesus didn't fit their bill. He failed to meet their expectations. Even Jesus' disciples and followers had to have been wondering, Jesus, when are you going to let the bad guys have it? Well, Jesus keeps on surprising people and letting their expectations down. Because instead of taking the government upon his shoulders, this child, who is now a man, he surrenders himself to the government. Betrayed by someone who journeyed with him for three years, Judas, for money. Soldiers come find him in the garden. Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am, and they fall. And then Jesus lets them arrest him, dragged to an illegitimate and illegal trial, false accusations, false witnesses. He's mocked. They spit on him. They slap him. They smack him in the face with their fists. His disciples betray him. They drag him off to Rome. Pilate finds no reason to accuse him, but he, gets him, he lets him get flogged to the point of death to appease the people. And during that time, the Roman soldiers mock Jesus. They play games with Jesus. They take his clothes off and they make this phony robe of purple and a wooden little scepter and a crown of thorns. And they mock him, hey, king of the Jews, hell, king of the Jews. They make Jesus carry his cross all the way to Golgotha, nail him, nails into his wrists and into his ankles. And if that wasn't bad enough, as he hangs on the cross in complete humility, naked, bleeding, whipped, the crowd taunts him. If you are the son of God, if you are the mighty God, come on off that cross. Come on off. Come on down. If you are that, we will believe you. And worse yet, the two other criminals on the crosses, two who deserve their punishment, they join in the fun. Mighty God. There on the cross, words of forgiveness were spoken from his mouth. Even there on the cross, Jesus made a way for one of those criminals to be able to enter into paradise. Love, restraint, absorbing punishment instead of delivering it. 
And whatever flicker of light and hope that the people had in Jesus being this child foretold in Isaiah went out the moment he breathed his last. But this child, whose name is Mighty God, is the same God who got crucified. What's mighty about that? And that, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, we, we have our plans. We have our ideas of how things go. We, we, we think we know better, but God's ways and his plans aren't our ways or our plans. We don't see things the way God sees things. We don't even understand the real issue in the world. We don't understand the depths of depravity in the human heart. And let's be honest, like we all would have had a different game plan to save the world and to eradicate evil than Jesus did. But friends, this is what we need to understand. The cross is the perfect expression of the mighty God. The cross is the perfect expression of the mighty God. And so when God flexed his muscles, when Jesus was on earth, it looked like God being crucified, taking on the world's punishment, taking on the sin of the world, my sin and your sin, because of our rebellious hearts. He did it for his enemies, which was all of us. We stood condemned. There's no good inside of us. We can never be good enough to earn anything. We all stand, con stand condemned already. The cross is the perfect expression of the mighty God. This is how the New Testament in Paul in 1 Corinthians started to communicate about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now listen carefully. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through their wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. What is that we preach? Christ crucified to save those who believe. For the Jews, they demand signs. They want exploitations of God's power. And Greeks want this to logically make sense. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The power of God, mighty God, is expressed on the cross. I want to ask a question. And if you are a skeptic, and, and if you are ever entertain the thought of like, ah, Jesus is just made up, or Christianity is just made up, let's ask this question. What do the gods look like when humans invent them? What do the gods look like when humans invent them? Look at our stories, our movies, 
Look at the, the gods of antiquity, the pantheon, Zeus. They quite frankly look like us with corrosive power and offering a religion of quid pro quo. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. Sure, they can get people to do what they want, but they do not and cannot change the heart, which is the real issue. The power of God is God's willingness to suffer and die in my place. The God who created everything, his power is that he is willing to die in your place. That doesn't make any sense. And that's why I believe it. Only the cross of the mighty God has the power to change us from the inside out. Jesus redefined and showed us what the power of a mighty warrior looks like. I love how 1 Peter set, describes this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile, revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and then live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Mighty God's plan in this moment of time is not political. It's not flexing the muscle of power, nor is it the enforcement of rules. His plan is personal. It's for each and every person. He came for you. He came for the world. He came for those who are even to come yet. He knows you personally. He knows your name. He knows your life. He knows your hurts, your wounds, the things that just haunt you at night that you can't snap out of. He knows where you've been, and he knows where you're at now. And he loves you as you are, not as you should be. His name is Mighty God. Wonderful Counselor. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. He wins the battle over sin and darkness by dying. And three, day, three days later, he conquers death, heaven, and the grave. That means there's a resurrection, which is by the means we can live a new life in Jesus. <laughs> and the disciples experienced that. They walked with Jesus for 40 days after he rose from the dead. Imagine that. What would you be thinking if you were the disciples after Jesus just died, took the worst that the world could give him, and said, what you got? I hope you did that. That'd be amazing. 40 days. <laughs> they couldn't help but to bring up their expectations again. In Acts 1, it tells us, Jesus, are you now going to do it? Like, are, are you now going to establish your kingdom and your throne now? Are you going to do it? And Jesus, is, in essence, said, no, not yet. But I'm sending you out 
to witness of my might and my love to the rest of the world. And here we are some 2,000 years later, and the world is still unraveling. Evil is still rampant, and we still ask the questions of where is this mighty God, don't we? Has he failed? This is what we need to understand. Isaiah's prophecy is only partially fulfilled. I want to ask this question. If Jesus did all that Isaiah said in chapter 9, taking the government on his shoulders, then establishing the throne, then, and upholding it with justice and righteousness, then, where would that leave us? It would leave us condemned. It would leave us guilty. Because we have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We can never be good enough to ever have even an ounce of righteousness. If he were to establish his throne right then and there and execute justice, his justice would have to try us and give us the sentence of guilty. Heaven would be vacant. Will God ever display his power and put the government on his shoulders? Will God ever establish his throne? Will he ever get rid of evil and injustice once and for all to heal all brokenness and make all things new? Yes! But first, he must come as the lamb. As a child born of a virgin. Why? Second Peter. Second Peter 3. I want to encourage you. Make a note, go back and study this passage. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is this promise of his coming? Where, where, where is this mighty God? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. Now check this out. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, they're stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Hint, hint, pay attention to this. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will be, ex or the works that are done on it will be exposed. So let me summarize all of that up with this one line. Almighty God's plan is to wipe out evil. But he wants to wipe out evil without wiping out you and me. He wants to save us, to rescue us, 
And that's why the cross is the perfect expression of the mighty God. He will come again. And when he comes again, he will come different. And when he comes again, it will be too late. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to receive the grace and the love of God, to see how the foolishness and the weakness of God is far superior than the wisdom of man and the strength of men. He will come. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, which was what it said in Isaiah 9. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, in other words, there's like a tattoo on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings, Lord Lords, but now, now, he wants to rescue and save those who are lost. Because he's going to wipe out evil. But he wants to do that without having to wipe us out. (laughs) So in many ways, I don't know about you, but for me, I can resonate with the disciples' questions sometimes when I look at evil and when it feels like God's power is absent. Will you now, God, will you now exert your might and power? And the answer is not yet. You are to be my witnesses. You're to tell the world of this amazing grace, the only hope of the world. This is the only power that we ought to trust in. And we've been given this charge by God. Those of us who've been changed by the love of Christ, we are called to reflect the love of mighty God. Friends, did you know that the word martyr comes from the word witness? So in other words, like friends, like don't let this like terrify you. But in the truest sense, we are called to be martyrs. Yes, you might not physically die for your faith, but you are to give your life away. To declare the mighty God and his love. Loving sacrifice, loving your enemies, serving, giving, investing your life into others, making disciples. And when you do this, you look like Jesus. And this is our opportunity to practically journey with the Holy Spirit to be able to spread the gospel, especially this Christmas season, in your homes, neighborhoods, schools, and workplaces. In church, also, we get opportunities to do this in other parts of the world because they too need to know about Jesus. And so I want to share with you a specific opportunity. So I want you to watch this video.
Market New Life is operating on faith, and Austin Oaks is partnering in just a section of their ministry in Rwanda. We got to go see the Eastern Province and a couple of the churches that they have over there. Every time a church building is built, that results in more child sponsorships in that region. And every child that's sponsored is connected to a family that is then in touch with that church and has an opportunity to meet and follow Jesus. We got to see that from the ground up, from seeing where the schools are built, how the churches are aligned with that, getting to go meet with the families in their homes and do sponsored student parties. And those are opportunities where we get to partner in relationship with them. Going to see our sponsor kid was definitely one of the highlights of the trip. His family was there and just so grateful and uh, personable. And you know, we had prayer time, we had exchange of gifts and stuff like that. It was just, it was amazing. The sponsorship is working. I mean, they'll get one child sponsored in the family and it helps the whole family. The most impactful thing to me was kind of the story of one of our students, John Nemour. Because of his experiences he had at this high school and in college and through Africa New Life, he was able to start a business. He's starting a transportation business where he's importing and exporting goods from other countries there in Rwanda. So it's fun to see how the transformation has happened in his life. And um, we can see his love for Christ and uh, just yeah. very inspiring story to us. He married a gal who's also an orphan. So through African Life, they were both blessed. And now he's sponsoring a child through African New Life, which is just uh, amazing. Those students get Christian education, meaning they learn the Bible, but they also get to learn English and sometimes French. So that allows them to go more places in this world. And going more places in this world does not just mean getting to be the next CEO of some amazing company. In their heart, it means sharing the gospel to more people. African New Life really brings two hands, as they say, right? There's the compassion uh, and the gospel. Um, so meeting needs, uh, as well as bringing forth the truth of the gospel. And what they're able to do with our resources is so much more than what we can conceive of here. This is who Jesus pursues. He sees their needs and he hears their prayers. And he uses us at Austin Oaks to fund um, these programs so that it can really change the lives. And you do that not only through sponsorship, through sponsorship of these vocational schools, but also by giving to a building that the Lord is gonna turn into a church. This past summer, we were doing a sponsor child party at one of the locations in Karangazi. 
And as we were doing it, the church facility was surrounded by this fence, but outside the fence was probably 50 to 100 other kids from the village that were watching this party go on. And as you saw those kids, you realize all these children are future possible people that they could be sharing the gospel with. And every time you build a new church building, you open up that possibility in a new village and replicate that process in a whole nother location. So I'm just thrilled and think it's an incredible privilege to be partnered with African New Life because of the incredible impact they're having all across Rwanda. This is the move of our mighty God. To see the love of Jesus change people and change hearts. And when we partner with him, we reflect that heart. And so you're going to hear more about opportunities of how we can partner on our next endeavor because we are going to be now in a phase of raising money for the third church plant in the Northeast province. Okay, and Pastor Chad at the end of the service is going to give you some more information about that. But every time we do this, not only does it bless us, but we're allowing the gospel to be spread in another part of the world that wouldn't otherwise be able to do that. So we get those unique opportunities to join what the Lord is doing. This message truly is good news of great joy. That's for all the people. God offers in an exchange his life for ours. His life for ours. And it's not rules. What he offers is a real relationship. This is the expression of mighty God. And I know maybe some of us in this room, some of you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to implore you to you that now is the time. When you say yes to Jesus, when you receive Jesus, you receive his righteousness. So you don't have to be good enough because it's his righteousness. You receive his goodness. You receive his worthiness. He takes all of your sin and he imparts or he gives in places all of his righteousness on you. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you are covered by his amazing grace. And that covering changes you from the inside out. Changes your heart. It changes your trajectory. And it changes the way you think and see the world. And you can receive that today, right now. He can take that sin right now. And he will give you his righteousness and give you his life. Grace is what changes the world. It's the best gift that we can receive, and it's the best gift we can give. I want to beg for you to receive this grace. And also at the same time, church, I want to challenge you. Will you extend grace to other people this Christmas season? Before we go into communion, I just want to have a moment of prayer together. And if you're at a spot where you're ready to make that decision to receive Jesus now, just pray along with me. 
just repeat these words. It's not like a magic formula. It's, it's the condition and the posture of your heart that matters. If you're ready to receive Jesus, just pray after me. Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I believe you are the Savior. I don't want to try and save myself. I'm weary of trying to be good enough. I receive you as my Savior. I receive your life. I lay mine down. I ask you to be my Savior. Lead me. Be the leader of my life from this day forward. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and for leading me from this day on. And if you just prayed that prayer, please let us know that you did so. Come on up, talk to me, talk to the staff person, talk to the person sitting next to you. But don't leave here without letting us know you've done so. As we move into this time of communion, I can't think of any better way to close this service than to remember and celebrate what our mighty God did. So if you have your communion elements with you, let's take communion together. So let's, let's, before we get into the scripture and do it, rip off that cellophane, get that little cracker, open up your juice, and then we'll do it. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the child who was retold in Isaiah 9, when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take together. Jesus, thank you that you are going to wipe out evil that you are going to make all things new. You're going to heal all wounds, physical, mental, emotional. And thank you that you demonstrated your might by giving your life for us. Lord, I pray that as we end this time in worship, I do pray that this song, that we sing and the words that come out of our mouth are true reflections of the gratitude of our heart 
where you alone are worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor. Be pleased to receive it, Lord. And if you did pray to receive Jesus, I want to encourage you. We have people praying on the sides. I'll be up there as well. Come on up. But even if you're at a spot in your life too where maybe you're like, I need to come back to Jesus. Maybe you've wandered for a bit. Don't walk out of here without making that decision, right? He still stands with his arms open. He will forgive you and cleanse you of that sin. Let's stand together in worship.